Good morning, everyone. Um, we're going to be reading the Bible together now. Um, we're reading from Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 24. It's on page 3 of the Pew Bibles, if you've got one. Um, I'll give you a moment just to find that. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you, your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Paul. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. We're continuing our look at these early chapters of the Bible uh, and these early chapters of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And today, this is a lot for a Sunday morning, but I want to raise a, an important and difficult question, which is, why is normality the way that it is? Why is our normality the way it is? We get used to things, of course, but if you just think about We've just started in November. If you just think about October 2023, uh, the, the anxiety and uh, division and hopes and disappointments and all the rest of it involved in the voice referendum, or uh, the, um, the Hamas uh, uh, murderous incursion into Israel, or Israel's uh, overwhelming and destructive response to that, or violent crime in a Sydney uh, independent school. What's going on with that? What's going on with that? But in a sense, those things that make the headlines are a bit of a distraction from the true extent of the problem, which is not those abnormal things, in fact, but the normal things. The problem which is just as evident in, 
in September as it was in October. Why is normality not better than it is? Why is marital tension and breakdown normal? Why is environmental degradation normal? Why is struggle and illness and trauma and death normal? Why do good people suffer? You know what? Why do bad people suffer? Why is any of this normal? Now, philosophers and theologians have sometimes described this question as the problem of pain or the problem of suffering. But of course, apart from being a bit of a shame, it's not a problem in that sense unless you claim that somewhere behind it there's a God of love and power and goodness. Then you've got a problem to square those two things together, which of course is what Christians claim. And I think that Genesis chapters 1 to 3 really do give us the most satisfying and hope-giving account of why normality is the way it is. And uh, that's what I want to look at this morning. And to, to set the scene, I guess, you see the way that it's framed at the very end of, of the Bible passage, the end of Genesis 3. It finishes this way. So the Lord God banished Adam from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a, uh, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. We don't normally focus on this verse. What is this telling us? Eden was made for humans and humans are made for Eden. But this is saying that now they are out. The place that they were designed to live and work and flourish is now behind them. Everything after this, the entire human reality, including your daily life, is in some profound sense an experience of exile. Exile. Banishment. The following chapters, when you get chapter 4 and the story continues, it's not a fresh start. It's really... It's really the start of carrying out the sentence that's pronounced in chapter 3. Out where we live, out here, normality is different. Sometimes normality is terrible, October 2023. Sometimes it's normal, so September 2023. But it's always exile. It's always exile. So the, scripture, the scriptural framing for human experience, the lives we live day by day and moment by moment, is a sense of being exiled, of being somehow adrift from our true home and place of belonging and flourishing. That's the defining paradigm, if you like, for human life. And what will characterise life in exile? That's what we're going to look at today. Two things. Hardship and hope. Hardship and hope. And really, this is the mindset that Christian people bring to daily life. Hardship and hope. Well, let's think first of all then about uh, hardship. Uh, eating, the, eating the fruit, the, those dramatic events of the first half of chapter three that Jerry took us through last week, it feels a bit, it, it feels a bit uh, story-ish how they eat the fruit. We, we have to realise just this, the sense of uh, scandal and calamity that was involved in that behaviour. It really involved... 
a coup against God's authority as creator. You see, in, in chapters one and two, God makes everything. It's all fantastic. And then you get this situation in chapter three where, where three of the creatures, the woman, the man, and the servant, they get together and they say, look, I'm going to move a vote of no confidence in God's authority around here as creator. How do you vote? All those in favour, they all vote. And the consequences of that sin in a world that's sustained by God's goodness as the creator, the consequences are instant. And ironically, we saw this last week, the immediate effect of their attempt to become like God is that they feel overwhelmed with fear and vulnerability. Uh, Adam and Eve are spontaneously threatened by each other. The eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. But not just that, the God who has been an unceasing source of blessing and encouragement to them, they now decide is a threat to them. They hide from him. The use of speech, which until this point has been used to, to create and to bless and to name things is repurposed to mislead and to blame. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. One writer puts it this way, the effect of sin is the sin of denying sin. The spontaneous effect of the sin he says, okay, okay. Whatever happens, I can't let this be my fault. <laughs> the effect of sin is the sin of denying sin. And what we get this week is God passes sentence. He speaks first to the serpent and he sentences him to be humiliated and finally destroyed. Because you have done this curse to you above all the livestock and all the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. You know, it's interesting, you might have picked this up if you're a Bible reader, you think, oh, there's a serpent, that's, um, that's Satan, right? That's evil. In, in this account, it's only ever described as a serpent. Uh, but I don't want there to be any confusion. The Bible consistently refers back to this and identifies the serpent with, uh, with God's great enemy, with Satan. And these, these symbols are, are reused over and over again. Isaiah, who looks forward to the resolution of God's purposes, says the wolf and the lamb will feed together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. He echoes that, that sentence passed by God. They'll neither harm or destroy on my holy mountain. Or in the book of Revelation, it refers to that ancient snake called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So it's a callback to Genesis chapter 3. Sentence is pronounced on God's enemy. But sentence is also pronounced on humans, and the sentence is really hardship. You could say this is a forcible reminder of their creatureliness, their limitations and dependencies. So things which would have brought them joy and satisfaction in Eden now test them to their limit. To the woman he said, I'll greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So this, this uh, exciting part of, uh, of the woman's role is now in, involves pain and difficulty. And this relationship, which was involved for oneness, remember the, the one flesh moment, 
and help and companionship, now it's corrupted by desire and by tension and by domination. And as for the man, his privilege in the garden had been to work the garden and to take care of it. But now he's told he's going to struggle for survival. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Creation suddenly becomes beyond his power to control. This is a shock to him. <laughs> it's obvious for us, right? You think, who can control creation? Uh, you know, climate change, droughts, feral animals, your own backyard. <laughs> Not just that, but daily work. Even if you love your job, daily work exhausts us and exasperates us. Even the things that we think this is meaningful. I'm looking after little kids. What could be more precious? <laughs> it's so draining. And most shockingly of all, life itself, which was sustained in the garden, will come to an end. It turns out humans were never immortal. Their life was also always sustained by the creator. It symbolised here as the tree of, of life. But now, in exile... They will die. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. Dust you are, and to dust you will return. And death, really, you could say this is the defining mark of exile. And it's so common that we tend, we, we get it, but we're not shocked by it. But, but every, so often, you know, every so often I'm confronted. I, I, I conducted a funeral here in this very building last week. And a bit unusual for nowadays, we had a service here and then we went out to Rookwood Cemetery and had a burial in the ground. And I was standing there beside the grave. And, you know, I lifted my eyes and if you've been to Rookwood, there's just fields upon fields stretching away to the horizon of death. I thought, wow. I mean, it's a commonplace, but it's everywhere. Over in St. Luke's Concord, they have what many churches have. They have a, a memorial wall with those, with those little niches in there that, that people uh, have their ashes placed after they've, after they've died. It's normal. And yet it's shocking. I love this. I bumped into this in the newspaper about six months ago. What an extraordinary headline. Trump, Biden share one potential enemy. <laughs> Death. Couldn't have put it better myself, except I think the word potential is a bit overly optimistic. I, I, think, I think, oh, they share an enemy. <laughs> I get it that they've been in, in, in political timing terms. But there it is. There it is. You could add names to that list. You could add my name there. You could put your name there. And the contrast with where we get to at the end of chapter 3, with all the excitement of chapter 2, Things coming into life and people meeting each other and things being good. It's, it's really a bit heartbreaking. But we recognise it. We walk out into, into, uh, uh, into the world. We walk out through the church doors. It all checks out. In fact, you don't have to walk outside. It checks out right here. You think, why are these chairs so hard? Come on. <laughs> it's okay to recognise this. 
This, this passage reminds us that we are in exile. And for Christians, we get that. It, it's, it's an important piece of expectations management, you could say. It's okay to find looking after kids exasperating. It's okay to hate filling out tax forms. It's not good, but it's okay to find life is filled with reversals and disappointments. It's the experience of exile, hardship. But the second part of exile is hope. Hope. What is there here for hope? Even in, even in this chapter, with so much yet to come. Well, I notice three things. There's hope based on a future, there's hope based on God's grace, and there's hope based on victory. A future, grace, and victory. Firstly, a future. This really struck me this week. Given the scale of the rebellion, perhaps the most obvious question for us to ask is this. Why does the Bible not begin with Genesis chapter 1 and end with Genesis chapter 3? You think about that? Why doesn't God say, I created it all, oh, they rebelled, you know what, we're done. Why does the Bible not end right there? The entire Bible, the entire story of the world, up to and including your daily life, is the story of God not destroying and not abandoning and not giving up on his creatures and his creation. The entire story is the story of God pursuing us in love. Exile is about God's refusal to abandon his creation. And the things that, ironically perhaps, the things that we often appeal to as calling God's existence into question, why is life so hard, you could equally argue are the evidence of his great love and forbearance that the world continues on. That the sentence was exile rather than death. Destruction. We have a future. So there's hope even back here. But secondly, you see these signs of God's grace. He provides tenderly for these exiles. You know, they, they're overwhelmed with uh, anxiety between one another. They, they rather pathetically repurpose the plants to create clothings for themselves. Look at what God does for the exiles. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. I think that's quite touching, actually. There they are wearing their fig leaves. We have a future here. We have signs of God's grace and kindness here. And finally, there's a victory. See, this is not, as I said, chapter 4 is not a reset. It's not a fresh start. But a reset will come, and it's promised back here. A great victory, but only at terrible cost. God says to the serpent, I'll put enmity, that is hostility, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And of course, the, the fulfillment of this remarkable little prophecy back here in Genesis 3, between people, humanity, and Satan, is found in Jesus, who all his life resisted and ultimately overcame Satan, who defeated sin and death, but only at the cost of his own death and ultimately resurrection. But you know, I think the most, the most wonderful thing that I see here 
This hit me with new, new force this week. Is that God here banishes them from Eden. But he doesn't, he doesn't wave them farewell at the gate. God goes with them. Do you see that? God goes with them into exile. There he is in chapter 4, sustaining them, blessing them, guiding them, speaking with them, relating to them, urging them. He loves and sustains these, these rebellious and tragic people, even in exile. And, and this is ongoing to fulfill his own promise of costly victory. He ultimately becomes one of them. In his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He pursues them into, into the brokenness of the world. He pursues them into exile to the point of, of incarnation. She's a theological word. The point of becoming a human being himself. See, Jesus is not born into Eden, where everything is great and flourishing and sustaining and where God says all is good. Where is Jesus born? Jesus is born into the brokenness of normality outside the garden. And more extraordinarily, given the headlines in our world at the moment, Jesus is born where? Into the land of Palestine. Can you imagine? Into exile. And in keeping with some of the, 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 the threads in this passage, he's born as a result of a woman's labour pains. That reminder of sin and its consequences. He sweats and toils to earn his living. He finally dies. He bears the full consequence of, of this curse of sin. And in so doing, he crushes the serpent's head, to use the poetic language that's used here. And so our daily life as we become followers of him it involves yearning for the outworking of that great victory. We know that will come because of the resurrection and because of the gift of God's Holy Spirit. See, what does this mean for us? The fact that God has pursued us into exile and taken human flesh upon himself and been born in exile in Jesus and, and overcome the enemy. It means that to be, to be a Christian is to be a hope-filled exile. Our exile has an end. To be a hope-filled exile. Do you sense that? Depending on your personality, you might skew, skew more to hope or more to hardship. To be a Christian is to bring both into every day. A hope-filled exile. And if you're joining us this morning and you're still thinking through the Christian faith or you feel a sense of discomfort with, uh, with some things and... and uh, uh, curiosity about others it's not a bad rule of thumb and my word to you if you're in that situation is this is not about redefining reality but it's about speaking a word of hope to be a follower of Jesus is to recognise exile but be filled nevertheless with hope uh, a number of years ago I've, I've got a, a, a dear friend that I meet up with we pray together and share and a number of years ago, there was, I was very burdened when we met together. There'd been a sin that I'd been struggling against in my life, just a pattern of behaviour. I just couldn't break it. I felt so um, humiliated. And I shared this with him. And I remember he prayed. He's not a minister, but he's a switched-on guy. I remember he prayed for me, and he said, he said something like, Father, I, thank, 
I thank you that this sin in our life is only a temporary reality. It was such a hope-filled and prophetic word. I thought, that's right. That's right, exile comes to an end. Even the sins with which you struggle, these are finite. These are finite. You can be a hope-filled exile as you struggle with the things in your life. It's temporary, it's finite, as is every difficulty, as is every sorrow, as is every disappointment, as is our, our exasperation with ourselves, our fearfulness over, over those who are dependent on us. All those things. And the great New Testament of faith, <laughs> the great statement of faith, I should say, the great New Testament declaration of hope for exiles that captures this balance comes from Romans chapter 8. I'll finish with this. I consider that present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What a great sentence. Exile and hope. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. What a statement of hope-filled exile. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that in hope we are saved. We thank you that in love you followed your people into exile to the point of being born among us in our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we take the words of the New Testament on our lips. Even this very day, Heavenly Father, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Amen.